Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is the Untitled Art Podcast, recorded live at the 12th edition of Untitled Art in Miami Beach. This year is very special for us because we have welcomed the Sotheby's Institute of Art on board as our first ever education partner. Since its inception, using the fair as a platform for discovering art in accessible and engaging opportunities has been at the core of Untitled Art's mission. So it has been really, truly a pleasure collaborating with the SIA team. The Institute has campuses in New York and London and is one of the world's leading institutions for the study of art and the object-based study of art. In conjunction with their programmatic partnership, a quick note to all listeners that SIA is offering our audience a discount on their professional courses, both online and in person. Make sure to check out our posts on Instagram and updates we've sent via newsletter. Now let's get into it. Recording live today, the Institute has curated a suite of three discussions with industry experts in line with Untitled Arts 2023 curatorial themes, gender equality in the arts, and curating in the digital age. And to introduce our moderator and panelists, I am delighted to introduce to you Janine Catalano, Director of Alumni Relations and Strategic Partnerships. Hello, everyone, and it's a real pleasure to be a partner with Untitled Art Fair this year. I'm delighted to introduce our second panel on the subject of the impact of technology. And while the future of NFTs is up for debate, their technological advances are undeniable. So today, our panel will look at what the practical applications and implications of this technology on the market for physical works of art are now and looking into the future. And I am very pleased to introduce our moderator, Brendan Burns, who is strategic advisor and director of the Enterprise Studio at Sotheby's Institute of Art, as well as a professor and senior lecturer in the entrepreneurship program at Columbia Business School. Over to you, Brendan. Thanks, Jeannie. It's always uh, daunting to be introduced as an expert, uh, but thankfully I, I have a full roster of uh, true experts and practitioners with me, and we'll, um, we'll hear from them in just a moment. Uh, for a little perspective, uh, I spend 75-80% of my time in the real world as an entrepreneur and about 25% or so in the academic uh, space, but those interests are totally aligned for me. <clears throat> As an entrepreneur, uh, I got very interested in art about 10 years ago, specifically because of how technology was changing the way people were interacting with each other um, with images as a catalyst. Uh, as I got deeper and deeper into that, which be what became clear to me was that technology really had the potential to expand markets like we've seen in many, many other instances. And so, what, uh, what I found fascinating was in the art space specifically, which has been largely object-based as we all know, technology has created more of a, uh, a pathway for experience. And so you don't run out of wall space when you sell experience, right? When you can connect an artist to a consumer in a, um, or, or an art lover or a collector uh, in, in a experiential way, you can begin to develop the fabric or um, connection that results in recurring interactions. So all of these things lead to potentially um, different business models uh, and an expansion of the art market in the way it's been traditionally defined. So I wanna get into some of those issues uh, today. Thank you guys all for, uh, for being here. The, uh, the last thing that I'll say before I uh, 
um, before I introduce our panelists, is that um, my perspective, really, my first startup was uh, in the mid-late 90s. And so uh, many of you are too young to remember this, but the dot-com boom was followed very quickly by a dot-com bust. And, and those two events really um, uh, got most of the media attention, and yet, and a lot of, there was a lot of pessimism about what was gonna happen next, but real people and real entrepreneurs continued to build. And what we saw from the period of 2000 to 2005 was continual adoption, innovation, major problems solved, all of which set the stage for the growth that we've seen since 2005. And in fact, some of the formative companies uh, that we think about today really gained a foothold and accelerated growth during that period of time. I am fully confident 10 or 15 years from now that we'll look back and see the same thing. So towards that end, uh, I, I want to introduce one by one very quickly um, our panelists to my left, Whitney Hart. Um, Whitney is, uh, is, a, um, is a curator, uh, really an expert at an intersection of multiple different things, formerly chief interim uh, marketing officer at Tezos. Um, so maybe you tell us a little bit more and what you're most interested in right now. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Whitney Hart. I am a graduate of the Sotheby's Institute, actually, um, in the New York campus. Um, I am an art and technology consultant, so I work with collectors, artists, and cultural institutions on emerging technologies and integrating those technologies into their practice or into their tech stack. Um, so practically, those technologies are blockchain, um, as well as AI and VR, AR, and XR. Um, and prior to my current role as a consultant, I was the chief marketing officer for Trilitech, which is the London hub for the advancement of the Tezos ecosystem. Um, so my remit was over the Tezos brand and the Tezos ecosystem. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Tezos is a blockchain that has pioneered in the crypto art space. Um, and prior to that role, I've had an 18-year career in marketing com and communications, um, specifically in digital marketing and the technology side. All right, thanks. Bernadine. Um, yeah, okay. I'll, um, hi, everyone. I'm Bernadine Brocker-Weeder. I'm the CEO of Arcule. We are an online technology provider for the art ecosystem, specifically using some of the cutting edge technology in the private blockchain and zero knowledge proof uh, space for art transactions. And we're looking at that intersection between um, physical artworks and the digital process of purchasing those artworks. And uh, we're a bit unique because we are a startup that was incubated by the parent company of Art Basel, MCH Group. Uh, the Luma Foundation, which is a nonprofit championing artists, and Boston Consulting Group. So it's a bit of a corporate venture startup that has come into this space to innovate. And um, we can talk more about building and working with that kind of blockchain hype into real products whenever. Yeah. Mark Billings. Thank you, Brendan. Nice to meet you. Came in very fashionably on the scooter. That was nice very job. on time. That's about as on time as I could get. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Mark Billings. I'm the founder of a company called Black Dove. And we got into the habit of doing digital art installations in large-scale commercial locations and personal residential homes. And then we have a technology stack that enables distribution of digital art on consumer televisions. But mainly we do large-scale 
key installations. We just did the Sotheby's show for Thank You X out in Los Angeles. We did the original Ferocious for, uh, uh, for Christie's. And we just partner with uh, the industry and make sure that the digital art is ending up on a wall in the way that it was intended. And there's some cool layers in between that we'll talk about in a moment. Thanks, Mark. So where I want to start maybe is, uh, and, and feel free to take this in, uh, in any direction, but um, with respect to technology enabling new and different business models, uh, maybe each of you would talk about something you're excited about that you've seen that maybe started um, and that you're seeing accelerating and how that might change the industry over the next five to 10 years. Uh, Bernadine, maybe you'd start. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I'll go a little bit back in time. Uh, prior to uh, being the CEO at Arquil, I was running my own startup that worked in the museum exhibition space called Vastari for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I saw firsthand how the content that was being exhibited at museums was changing in dimension. So we started off with physical paintings going from one location to another and touring that around the world to different museums around the world with uh, different lenders, including other institutions, collectors, all of this type of thing. Um, then increasingly that content was digital and being shown in a physical location. So you might have image mapping, you might have projections, you might have screens. And the art industry was kind of grappling with this in terms of what is it exactly? Is it a ticketed experience? Is it actually an artwork? Uh, you could addition it. There were some really interesting early startups like Sedition creating uh, limited editions of digital works. And then the uh, COVID happened and a lot of it accelerated. And you suddenly had this question of what is digital content going to digital venues and how do those business models work? So that's why, where I was very interested already from the really beginning of blockchain about how you could start defining what these things are, what is content, what are venues, what are visitors, what are owners. Um, and that's really what all of this is about, is, is trying to define within this green field of digital and art, what, what is what. B very cool. Um, go ahead, Whitney. And just to piggyback on that, I think that some museums and institutions are doing really interesting things to pioneer in the space of blockchain technology. One of the things, one of the projects that I'd like to call out is MoMA's postcard project, which was just launched uh, in early October. Um, and open to the public earlier in November, early last month. Um, and so the postcard project is a really interesting project where you can commence a postcard. Um, there are 15 stamps that are available and using a pixelated tool, you can design your own stamp, sign it, and then send it to a friend and send it to 15 people all around the world and collaboratively you make a postcard. Um, and all of this is enabled through blockchain technology through an app called Autonomy Wallet. Um, and within the wallet, when you download the app, you can then communicate with the other 15 people. You can see how far your postcard has traveled. Um, and so it's a really interesting way to bring new forms of interaction and audience engagement through blockchain technology to the museum audience and also bring new people who maybe have never visited MoMA, they've never been to New York, they have never looked at the MoMA website. Now they're starting to interact with museums in an entirely new way um, and with new mechanisms learning about art history um, because the Postcard Project also capitalizes on this long history of pixel art um, as well as mail art, which is part of MoMA's permanent collection, um, as well as 
Joseph Boy's social sculpture. So it is an art historically steeped project, um, bringing coming up to date to the current current moment with blockchain technology. So it's interesting thinking about how museums are starting to innovate and collaborate with uh, technology vendors that can provide this type of technology solution for them. We love the, hello, yeah. A lot of good challenges for museums because they're not used to the technology. So there's a lot of great questions that, are, that we're seeing in the market right now. The, the question, Brendan, was about uh, new revenue models, right? Yeah. We took a different approach. We took an approach that we think that digital art represents a, a transformative moment in history, much like the printing press uh, opened up books from a one of one to a one of many. So we partner with artists and then enable their artwork to be licensed. So uh, there's the one of one market, there's the limited edition market, and then we focus on commercial publishing rights we typically find that a, a client will license 10 to 12 works per year. And because, as Brendan mentioned, there's a screen, typically collectors will have one screen in their home. They're not gonna have 10 screens, that's too much. Some people do, but that's very rare. So if you have a screen, then that really opens up the opportunity to have an unlimited amount of digital art in your space. And so we fix that layer in place. So we connect to the blockchain and then we enable artists to offer their artwork for licensing. And then there's a really interesting question about how much do collectors participate in that revenue stream. Uh, but the model is definitely seeing that collectors are buying more art, that people wanna uh, get exposure to more art and then also, the technology enables at the one of one level a gallery to share a work of digital art to a collector who has a screen without necessarily having to come into the gallery. So you could share it for 24 hours, do a preview in home on screen, and then the purchasing can happen thereafter. I, I love that you brought that up, meaning about the uh, really the resale issue, because I do want to get there in, in a minute. And I, and I think um, one of the cool things about this panel is the perspective of each person and the experience that you bring are complementary and quite different. Having been at Tezos, I really worked on those problems, and Tezos was really formative in many ways, right, in the early NFT market and experimented with many things. What is your um, perspective, Whitney, on how uh, uh, you see the resale, the potential resale for traditional artists being implemented um, today? Like recording? Yeah, both recording and then ultimately sharing in, sorry to be unclear, recording and then ultimately sharing in a potential um, for uh, re to resale as in music or film, video, and other mediums? So the Tezos blockchain was one of the early formative blockchains in the space, and they were the kind of one of the original and pioneering um, proof of stake blockchain. So unlike Ethereum, that was proof of work and then transitioned, um, and they got a lot of really negative feedback about um, the environmental impact and energy consumption required for proof of work, um, Tezos was proof of stake from the very beginning. Uh, and so this was an ecosystem that then grew in the art space because people were, artists are very concerned, contemporary artists are very concerned about the environment, about um, the impact of that 
everything that we do day to day has on the on the environment and on global warming. And so, um, you know, I think that this really robust community developed there. Um, and off of that, the marketplaces that exist on Tezos have all committed to enforcing artist royalties. Um, so unlike something like OpenSea, which originally enforced artist royalties, and now you can elect to pay artist royalties or not when you go through the transaction process, um, there is no option on any of the Tezos marketplaces. You have to pay the royalties. Um, and this is, as I said, something that the founders of FXHash, Object, Taya, and others have all publicly committed to keeping it that way as long as they're around. Um, and so I think that kind of that brings us to the next part of the question, which was how does that um, impact then bringing traditional artists into the blockchain um, and potentially have an impact onto resale rights in the real world? Um, you know, I think that it is something that's interesting and, and attractive. I'm one of the traditional contemporary artists who's a painter and a sculptor that I work with um, actually then found out the other day that 12 of his pieces were donated to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston and he had no idea they had wound up there and they've been there in the collection for like over five years. And so this is obviously a huge deal for his practice. It would be an amazing point to help augment his market. Um, and, you know, he was so surprised that no one had ever contacted him to ask about this. Um, and so we started talking about blockchain technology solutions, not only for tracking where his artwork has wound up over the course of a few decades, um, but also then what it would look like to have some sort of resale rights around that artwork in question, um, whether it was donated or whether it was resold and what that would do for his practice today. Um, I think that there's a really large opportunity, but obviously there's a lot of challenges. Collectors in the traditional space have a very typical business model that they're accustomed to and getting them to change and accept the idea of giving up a percentage commission back to the artist in question at the point of sale, part of their profit is certainly a challenging conversation to navigate. And I think that's a good yeah. handoff to what you're doing at our Basel this yeah. week. Yeah, exactly. I think um, we've seen firsthand how complicated it is and technology on its own is not the solution so I think it's great you brought up licensing and legal agreements because I think if you're talking about resale royalties, there are some countries where, for example, the droit de suite or the artist resale right is included as an, a legal obligation. Whereas, for example, here in the States, you don't have that as a legal obligation. It's optional. And all of these resale royalties that were put into the blockchain were, con I guess you could say, contractual royalties. They were an agreement between the artist and the buyer that the buyer would uphold that in future. Um, but the problem was, uh, programmatically, it was enforced by the marketplaces. And as you said, they could then decide to change that. So we've been working um, on the technology, but also the legal infrastructure to give people the recourse that if someone purchases the work and says, I will give you a percentage in the future of the upside or of whatever it might be, that that is enforceable legally as well as technologically. And I think that's really important. You can't just say the blockchain is going to be a, a, a silver bullet and solves everything. You need to make sure that it's, it's enforceable. Isn't it jurisdictionally dependent, though? Always. But uh, a contract is a contract. So um, there will... I think there is an, an element here of believing in the artist's 
having a sustainable livelihood. I think that the reason that the company that I run was founded was in this belief that um, artists should make money from the, the, the success of their careers. Um, however, um, it needs to be done in a way that is credible and that can actually work within the market and not, um, and, and that's nuanced, I guess, is the, the truth. Ab absolutely. As a segue to asking Mark to comment on that, I've always thought about this, this issue, which is super exciting in a lot of ways because I think it has the potential to truly expand the market, but it would, the friction would be much lower if you could capture the art at the point of origination. Um, given that you guys work with a lot of art at the point of origination, I'd like to know what your thoughts are and also how you, th you think it might evolve. So as, as you were just mentioning, one of the biggest challenges of being an artist is that it was always a single transaction. It was an object and once you sold it, it was gone. If you look at every other form of intellectual property uh, creation uh, in this day and age, you've got books, but you have a commercial publishing, right? You can sell books for your entire career. You, build, you create more books, your catalog continues to earn money. If you're an actor or a, a movie producer, uh, then you have distribution rights, right? And if you're a, a, an actor in Hollywood, you're part of the SAG artist, uh, you know, actors union. You build a 401k, you have money, you have retirement income. That doesn't exist for traditional artists. And so the royalty is so critical because you build up this body of work, your whole career, you're building your personal brand. That early work begins to trade that's really the 401k, as you would say, for an artist. And it's really, really important to get that codified and, and, and into the legal opportunities to drive that. So I think we're, you know, I think we're all aligned. That's very, very good for the industry. Uh, and then, you know, to the extent that there's new revenue streams that are available, there's definitely a question in the digital space about the collectability, right? It's new, anytime there's a new form, a new medium that's evolving, it's, there's gonna be natural questions about it. Obviously, MoMA's collecting Rafik now, and that's a great gateway to the next generation. The number of new installations of digital art, we're up, you know, we're doing about 15% monthly growth right now. Today, let's say there's less than 10,000 digital art screens installed in people's homes, plus or minus in the United States, compared to two and a half million Peloton bikes, right? So, you know, there's a huge market opportunity to get digital art into physical spaces. And the ripple effect of that is that the revenue generation of the consumption in those screens then pumps back into the token holder who will get a percentage of that revenue and then you get token prices growing not only because maybe it's appreciable in value out of a scarcity of assets standpoint but then you're actually owning an asset that's earning you money like owning a rental apartment now that value of that asset's actually growing talking about like new getting collectors interested in new ideas i haven't figured out how to tell this story yet I think I think collectors are that that uh, the, the important. Uh, when you were talking, I was thinking about custodianship because people often ask, "What does it mean to collect this digital art?" Because you're you're buying something that anyone could right click, save, take care of, etc. The truth is, you're kind of upholding that you care about this and that it has value and that you will preserve it and keep that item in your crypto wallet so that then in the future it's still going to exist. And I think. Um, it's interesting that they, in terms of new models, it's not just 
one person being the custodian. You can start having multiple people taking uh, uh, charge of being custodians of it. And the communities that come around some of uh, the artists' work work together because they can find each other on the blockchain and connect about the fact that they own similar works. Um, but I think that there is a, dif a, a definite difference between how artists working in digital media think about this versus how artists working in traditional media think about this. There is some crossover, but there's definitely still a huge difference in how to think about the, 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 the way you want your work to be taken care of and the way you want it to be sold. And I wonder if it's because of that difference in custodianship when you're talking about a digital item versus a physical item that needs re restoration and storage and all of these types of things. We have a, we have a slightly contrarian view on the custodianship as it relates to the publishing of the source asset onto IPFS. Uh, we don't think that that's gonna last long term. Mark, can you explain what IPFS is? IPFS is the hard drive of the blockchain. So when an artist mints an artwork on a, on a blockchain, the art itself gets stored on IPFS, which is like interplanetary file system. It's a funny name. Which means like wherever you bought it, if that exchange or something disappears, it should still be available on IPFS. In theory. In theory. In theory is a very important point, yeah. But, you know, honestly, you know, our position on this is that it's a historical accident that that's true. There's no other form of human intellectual property that's freely downloadable. The reason why we are here today is that blockchain was absolutely not developed for digital art. It was developed for cryptocurrency. And in that model, all metadata was uh, required to be public in order for the transparency to be there. If we separate scarcity of ownership, which is token ownership, from scarcity of access, which is the ability to access the file, then there's a very interesting new conversation to be had around the fact that the source file, the 4K or whatever the source file asset is, not be available as right click and save, but only be available to the token holder. So token gating access to the asset. And again, that's, you know, if we, if we look at Napster, which destroyed the music industry because it made every art, music downloadable, and then they said, let's get this under wraps. I think there's an opportunity for the industry to evolve to the point that, you know, it, it's no longer in the public domain. I was just going to say, as a point of clarification, there actually are some NFTs that are stored on the blockchain. Um, generally, generative art is stored on the blockchain itself. It is not stored on IPFS. Um, and there is a tool called Club NFT where you can pay a subscription and actually buy your own backup of all of your NFTs. So if you're very, a very conscientious collector and you want to potentially avoid the situation in which you're uh, NFTs disappear because they are on IPFS, you can then proactively go out and, and back no, them up and own them yourself. I think, I think 
IPFS is an amazing or, um, system. I, I own NFTs that are on IPFS. I, I, I am going to make sure that they do not disappear because I understand how it works, etc. But it is a risk that they can disappear if you don't take care of it, don't use right-click can save, etc. I want to shift the, the conversation. Just, can I make one yeah, yeah, quick sure, comment? Just some files are too big to go on IPFS and they're just too big for all of this. I think some of the artworks that you're working with and what artists do then is in the NFT put like a a low res version of the file and the real file is then transferred to the collector. So I think there are lots of different ways that people handle this. It, it strikes me from an industry perspective that the real opportunity is, um, is really at the evolution and intersection between these markets. In other words, in a way that the technology can evolve so that the, uh, we're talking about how the tech supports physical work and not just digital work, and not just digital work, that we are in a better, uh, we, we've set the stage to grow the industry more. And so like the last several years at Art Basel, we've had two different conversations ongoing, the traditional industry folks and the digital industry folks. And they're both in many ways, they're, they're just talking to each, each other and separately. But the real opportunity it strikes me is five years from now, when there's much more intersection and the tech um, helps facilitate growth in a way that doesn't ex exist today. So what are, what are like the one or two problems that you think have, solving them have the potential to, um, to merge these things and set a path for growth? I was gonna say, I think your technology, Bernadine, um, has a really huge opportunity to play here. I also think that Pace has done a great job with Pace Verso um, of partnering with their artists in the traditional roster that they have um, and educating them about the opportunities around NFTs and blockchain technology and what crypto art can do as an extension of their existing practices. Um, I think that breaking down some of these concepts of like, oh, the blockchain's a JPEG hanging, you know, the NFT is a JPEG hanging off of the blockchain is something that needs to go away and there needs to be a reconsideration of how the blockchain is actually a valid artistic material. Um, and you do have a lot of institutions that are helping drive that forward. And I do think that Pace is leading that conversation in the gallery market. And I think that Arcule stands a really good chance of working with artists and helping galleries along that educational path because of your placement with MCH Group and our Basel. I, it's a big responsibility and I, we're, we're, we're trying to, to, to do it in the right way. Um, the, the goal is really to help people understand what the potential is for this technology. So it's not just about storing the artwork on the blockchain, but actually storing the information around the artwork, what we call the digital dossier. All of the information about what is happening with that artwork, what the artist statement is, all of these important files that get lost and making sure that that's stored. But also in terms of the payment process, being able to track that the payment is going where it's going to go. So for example, we're using the same technology that we use for artist royalties uh, at the moment at the Art Basel Fair. Um, to facilitate something called Access by Art Basel. Um, it's a pilot. There are 15 works at Art Basel that if you purchase the work, 10% or more is going to go straight to charity. So uh, there are uh, four charity initiatives that we have partnered with from the Miami Foundation and the International Committee of the Red Cross. And what it means is if you buy one of these 15 works, 
10% goes straight into the bank account of the charity thanks to the payment split technology. So it's, it's kind of about talking about the collectors and, 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 and wrapping your head around it. It's like, it's not just about JPEGs and blockchain. You can use this technology to actually create enforceable uh, technological solutions that do what you want it to do in a transparent and trusted way. Um, so yeah, if you want to go and check it out, it's uh, at, the, at the convention center. And I think the question you asked, Brendan, which is sort of what's the next technology that's going to take us forward, I think what's key here is that the three of us are obviously deep in this subject matter, right? And we could definitely agree and disagree about so many different pieces, partly because it's frankly evolving so quickly, right? One of the beautiful aspects of this medium that I know captivates me is that it's all software code. And so just like all other software, it's evolving continuously. I'm constantly surprised by the new innovations that we're seeing coming from artists. And you know, you gotta pay attention. Like, oh, is this a new trend? What are we seeing? How is this art gonna move? How is this gonna get displayed? It's definitely more a conversation than it is. There's nothing definitive, right? It's, that's the beauty of the art world. That it's going to continue to evolve, and we want it to evolve. Let's, let's actually pause, because I want to um, give some time for some questions from the audience. Um, is there anybody that uh, has a question? Yeah, I'm so glad that, I, because I come here very just a, a little bit late, so I'm, I'm happy to know your your you you do the the most important thing for me to just transform the digital art to the real world yeah because you mentioned the uh, pace versal they they really done a great job but the only problem now is they just expect the digital art online uh with the cooperation with art block and i i just uh, asked their staff so why not include the real artwork into the real exhibition at the pace gallery they didn't do that. But Define real? Yeah, um, that's, good. that's good question. Yeah, the real is just um, like the, the visitors to know, to, to really watch the, the digital art in the real space in person, not just look at the screen. So I, I, my question is that how you do to transform the digital art to the real world? You just mentioned that it's your career. So, Thank you. So, you know, the blockchain and to the point that we were speaking to earlier, every artwork is different. You have JPEGs, but that's the easiest. You have MP4s, which are video files. Then you have code-based art that is, you know, JavaScript-based. Then you've got executable files. Then you've got, uh, you know, Unity-based files, touch designer-based files. So you have all these amazing tools that artists are working on right now. At the end of the day, in order for digital art to, if it's moving image, if it's still image, that's a different story, you can print it. If it's a moving image file, then you need a display of some sort. And then you go down you know, a checklist of the complexity of the artwork and what type of computational capabilities you require. The art blocks work is all, not all, but a lot of it's generative, which means it's a piece of code that's running all the time. And what makes that so captivating is that it's, continually evolving in your space, right? It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a platform shift. How about uh, more questions? I'm sorry, you want to go ahead, Whitney? I was going to say, I think that a lot of artists now are looking at um, 
how to create companion prints for their uh, digital artwork. So now various artists are looking at either how they can provide a print to you and it's a companion piece when you mint or purchase the NFT. Um, but then others are also looking at plotters and plotters are making a huge comeback and Manfred Moore actually is showing at the Bitforms booth um, right at the entrance and he is one of the early pioneers of computer art um, from the 1950s and 1960s um, and he has some beautiful prints, plotter prints from the 60s and 70s on display that are in incredible condition. Um, and so it's interesting to see how some of these technologies from the early days of computer art are really making a comeback, um, not only generative art from that art historical legacy, but then some of these techniques of printing and kind of bridging the digital with the physical um, and innovating that further. There's a company called Art Modder based in Brooklyn, and they've not only looked at plotting, um, but then also taking it a step further using that technology for painting and for actual paints. Um, so they're looking at innovating with bringing kind of the digital into the physical as well. If, if you were going to guess, beyond time and incremental innovation, uh, what will make the biggest difference to drive mainstream adoption? When I say mainstream, people who are at least typically bought uh, traditional art, what would uh, those one or two things potentially, killer apps, be that will accelerate adoption and the fusing of technology and traditional work? You go first. Me go first? Well, when we started this company... Uh, the first thing we did was we approached Samsung and we said, hey, we're going to be building a digital art company. And we worked with them to develop what's now called the Samsung Frame Television. And that product is still evolving. It sort of got built, unfortunately, in Samsung's headquarters by a bureaucracy. And so it failed at a couple of key points. But it will get fixed right now. And as it gets fixed, the cost of displays come down, but also just generationally, right? The generational adoption of the Snapchat generation, right? Native, digital, that, that they want to bring their art wherever they go. They want to, you know, much like you bring your music anywhere you go, digital art is, you know, So you it's, think it's, it's, a hard, it's a hardware... I think it's the intersection of the, it's a generational item. And then I think it's definitely a hardware item because there is no perfect screen out there right now. Bernadine, you interface with so many traditional giants of the industry. What about them? So I, I asked you to go first because I was about to say hardware. So to add on to hardware, I would say it's got to do with um, identity and wallets. So we currently don't really have a standardized way of approaching identity online. And we use email addresses for logging into everything. And that is evolving. And uh, when that evolves and our, the way that we handle our, uh, our wallets and all of this evolves, that's going to be crucial. Because if I think about the way that I worked with collectors of physical art for a very long time, and including the physical art collectors who have stuff in warehouses that you say, you're not even looking at it in your home. Why are, why do you, why are you buying it? And it's similar with NFT collectors because they're buying stuff that they're not putting on the walls of their homes. They're, they're, they're holding onto it because they cherish it. They think it's important. And so 
I think that it's it's got something to do with that 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 place of storage and that identity and how you show it because you mentioned you're a digital art collector I also have been collecting digital art and if I want to show someone I have to show them on my little screen on my phone what these amazing works are so I think there there's something that's going to evolve there that will change everything I also think that going beyond just the NFT, I think that the hardware around AR, VR, and XR also needs to evolve. And the ability for immersive digital environments needs to improve dramatically so that people feel like they're not just looking at their TV screen and just seeing a piece of art as opposed to, you know, right now I spend 10 hours of my day staring at a computer screen, a TV screen, one of these things. I think that the ability for technology to be a more seamless part of my life holistically completely is really important um, and we're really just not there yet I think it'll take about another 10 to 15 years for headsets um, and these other types of technology to really come along um, I do think there's a general generational shift that needs to happen um, one of Hans Ulrich Obrist's favorite quotes right now um, is that this year 3 billion people played video games and that's more than a third of the world's population is playing video games every single year. I think that as generations continue to shift um, and this younger generation that is so accustomed to playing video games, but not only playing video games, the important nuance here is also that their communities are online. They feel more kinship to their friend in their video game who's halfway across the world than they do to the potential friend they go to school with or you know the other child six houses down that traditionally they would have rode bikes with or played catch with right like the way that this younger generation is interacting with each other is changing so dramatically and rapidly and as the technology continues to evolve to serve the needs the hardware and the software continues to evolve to serve the needs of this younger generation. I think that we're gonna see a dramatic shift in the importance of digital objects and digital ownership and also in ways of interaction with those digital objects. Impossible, impossible to argue with the fact that the video game generation is driving this and digital asset ownership too, right? Because you're in video games and you're buying stuff. And I think that, you know, one important thing to remember is one definition of a metaverse is a video game. So as much as everyone wants to poo-poo metaverses and say that they're dead, and I understand that users in the metaverses has declined so dramatically since COVID, and there are all these statistics of, you know, this metaverse only has 100 active users and da-da-da, I understand all of that. I also think that it's a casualty of the post-COVID environment and the fact that the technology, both the software and the hardware, is not where it needs to be today for ongoing engagement, but ultimately metaverses generally with videos, video games being one subcategory of a broader umbrella deemed metaverse, I think will evolve to get there in the next one to two decades. Video games are, are really a, a wonderful, I think, example of, of where this could, could go because they, are, they represent really the intersection between storytelling and curation and experience. And for art, I think that that's a very interesting path to growth. Um, with that, I want to thank Untitled, um, thank our panelists. You guys are amazing. Uh, it's a pleasure to be up here with you. And, uh, and thank you guys for listening to us for a few minutes today. Thank you all.